music, news, interviews, live events, and more. Welcome to the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. Hey, it's Matt Pinfield. It's the Hivecast. And my guest today is Tom Sharpling. And Tom has an incredible history, so I'm going to just start right out by talking to him about it. Some of the things that he's done. He does a great radio show on WFMU, which you can hear pretty much. You can stream anywhere in the world, as well as his podcast, Low Times. Show is the best show on FMU. So I, I just want to, first of all, Tom, what I found was amazing was I found out that you were actually from Donnellan, New Jersey. And I lived there for a little while in between, you know, Athens, Georgia, where I was born, and East Brunswick, where I grew up. Yeah. And I, I think we bought records as kids at the same places because... I remember a drugstore where they had the records, which was like on one of the main corners on the main street there. Right? Yeah, right on the corner. It was uh, kind of like a like a local drugstore. It's, yeah. it's hard for people to realize now because everything is chain drugstores. But yeah, you know, every town had its little mom and pop kind of drugstores, and they had these racks of of forty uh, fives that were like ninety nine cents, I think, or yeah. something like that. And they would just I don't know if they were remainders or cutouts or whatever they were, but they would. Um, I would kind of load up on stuff there. Yeah, afford it because you could afford that stuff. You know, they have the new ones, and then there was a, like a what they call five and dime store, which mm-hmm. basically meant five cents and ten cents. I mean, things, yeah. they, they were probably maybe a quarter, but yeah, that was around the block two in Donnellan on the main yeah. street. Yes, I, that actually is the place I bought the forty fives, not the drugstore, the five and dime. Yeah, the five and dime. Yeah, that, uh, I remember buying. Uh, ELO 45s there. Yeah. Like and, after they were out already for a while. Yes, right? They were like I, cutouts kind of thing. Sure. Right? Yeah. For those people who are listening who don't know about that, it's um, for some of our younger folks. Cutouts were basically the things that were on discount because they were no longer on the charts, basically. Yeah. On the singles charts or on Top 40 Radio. or So it was great. You found great stuff there. Oh, yeah. They'd make a whole bunch of them and then whatever they didn't sell, they'd kind of dump off at places like a drugstore or a little five and dime store and you could load up on stuff. I didn't care if it wasn't new. I got to have records. Yeah, that's what it was about. It was about me because, you know, we were. it's not like we were rich kids or something. So you were, because uh, we weren't, you know what no. I mean? So you, whatever you could afford, no. mowing lawns or delivering sure, papers. Exactly. Or, you're a Jersey slob. Yeah, we were. Absolutely, we were Jersey slobs. Every cent you get. <laughs> I started, That's why I started working when I was a kid. You know, I had a paper route and uh, I worked. I was a busboy and a diner and all these jobs just because like, I, I think I got the bug pretty early on... Uh, I'm buying records yeah. and having the yeah. music, right? I mean, yeah. yeah. You can only ask your uh, parents for so much stuff. Yeah, and then you, then they're like, you know what? You got to earn that yourself. And sure. you sit there and you try to decide which thing to buy. Oh, yeah. I remember some, uh, I think the first albums I bought with my own money was uh, Armed Forces. By Elvis Costello, one of the greats. Yeah, one of the greats. And it had uh, a bonus single in it. Yeah, the, like... the that Live at Hollywood High. Yeah, yeah. It had like Accidents Will Happen. That piano version was amazing. So great. And uh, bought uh labor of lust yeah nick Lowe. yeah like those were i was probably nine when i started buying that stuff so i was hooked early and i have not unhooked myself i think it's great i I love i know that you have that love for music you know it was funny too there was a a department store called corvettes in new jersey too Mm -hmm. that i remember they when they were trying to get rid of some of those singles there they used to do a thing 10 for a dollar and if the songs that might have been hits or had or by an artist that people knew would be on the outside of the box of 10 so like you could see through one side of it and you go, wow, I want that single. And then you'd buy it and then all the other no names were inside. But sometimes you found some great things. Yeah, but it's it's always those... uh, Misleading. Yeah, who knows what the other eight records in this thing are going to be. Yeah, exactly. You're right, though. That's how you find... 
look, I, I think you learn pretty early if you're into this. Just because it, it wasn't popular doesn't mean it wasn't good. It's like that's that's the history of some of my favorite stuff is that it never clicked with people in its own time. Exactly. And then some of the things that didn't click in their own time become so influential later on. Sure. There's so many, so many bands like that. And some things that are really popular really suck. Well, that is, <laughs> Let's yes. just be honest. Think, yeah. pretty, every, everybody knows that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but... Uh, so, Tom, tell me about getting into being a disc jockey and, and where, where your next steps were. Like, you know, going, going into junior high and high school. Well, being in high school, I was already super into music, started seeing shows in the city, would take the train in and uh, try to see stuff. You know, that's when you're going to see, like, Billy Joel at Madison Square Garden, kind of the big shows. Yeah. Or, you know, stuff at uh, Radio City. It's like, what you know, or the Beacon Theater. Like, when you're... when like you're you're too young to go see things in clubs yes. at that point, but you're you know you go. I would go see. Uh, I think Billy Joel at Madison Square Garden might have been the first show I saw without my parents. Yeah, and uh, you know I was fourteen. Did you take the bus in? We took the train in oh, right under in. Penn Station. Gets out. I remember uh, my friend had uh, he had the tickets, and the, the, you know they asked me if I wanted to go. I was like, yeah, this would be great. And then as soon as we got into the city, one of the kids was like. Uh, like, let's go to 42nd Street. I want to buy a switchblade. You know, like, yeah. like, oh, who am I? Who are these kids I'm friends with? Yeah. And then he, uh, like, the guy was like, uh, he just found some guy in the street. Like, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? And the guy's like, he's like, I want a switchblade. Like, uh, $30. And he's like, uh, and he's like, no, that's too much. And I was like, my friend's like. He's ghost. actually, he's yeah. like bargaining. He's and bargaining. With, with <laughs> like a street thug. The guy's like, all right, 20. He's like, all right. You stay here. I'll be right back. And he comes. The guy comes running back with a, like running back. I guess that's always the thing they the, these guys did was act like there's like like give me the money, give me the money. Comes running back a couple minutes later with a paper bag, jams it into my friend's sock, takes the money, and the guy runs away. And then my, we went over to the, uh, like uh, Macy's or whatever department store bathroom. And then he's in there, and he's all of a sudden like he, he starts cursing. And then I uh, we we look, and there's a uh, mounds bar was rolled up in the paper bag. So he just like, I guess that must be the, that must have he been just ripped game him off to rip off the <laughs> running game. From New Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> they see him coming from a mile away. So. Yeah. There's so much for a switchblade, even though he yeah. probably could have gotten the switchblade for $5. Yes. And still money. made a $15 profit. You yeah. know? <laughs> yes, exactly. But he figures he might as well, he bought the candy bar for, for 50 cents. He might as well sell it to Jersey kids, buy a mounds bar. Stick in a paper bag and, you know, <laughs> what are they going to act? They're not going to never see that guy again. Yeah. I so. mean, he's, he's, that's what it is like when you were young. I mean, I remember how crazy it was, you know, one time walking back to Port Authority and actually looking down and stepping over a guy who was either dead or he was bleeding from his head was split open on the sidewalk. It was pretty freaky for a young kid oh, to see something like some that. Some of the scariest nights I've ever had were the nights when it w- you would park your car at Port Authority, go see a show. And then not realize that Port Authority parking wasn't 24 hours and they wouldn't let our car out for a yeah. couple hours and we're waiting in Penn Station or you miss the last train. Yeah. And now you're floating around. And it's also before, you know, ATM cards and cell phone stuff. So you're kind of whatever money you have on you, you got to make that last to get through the two or three hours yeah. that you like are stuck there yeah. in one of the worst places. It's yeah, exactly. unbelievable. And you you learn pretty fast about uh, not needing to go to the bathroom. It's yeah. one of the things you learn pretty. It's just like, I think I can hold Because I think it back then it was back. like a quarter to get into the bathroom, wasn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. That's cents? when they had those. Uh, how did that 
fly ever that they had you had to put a quarter in a thing turn the handle and then the stall door opens like that's progress i guess for us that that, that went away yeah exactly the city's definitely changed a lot too though yes. right cuz yeah. it was much new york city was such a crazy oh, place back i don't miss the way it used to be like look i don't hang out i didn't hang out in that times square i don't hang out in this one yeah but a lot of people moan about how it's not like it was in the old days. It was that was scary. It, it was, was a, scary. It was like you know, Forty Second Street was not a place you wanted to spend much time on. No, I was terrified whenever I was had to go through that. <laughs> you know, yeah. So tell me about when you started DJing. Where did you start? Um, right out of high school. I was just a huge radio fan. It you know it's you know I was reading Rolling Stone, reading Cream, and you know. Hit Parader and Circuses, any music magazine I would read. And those were all the magazines that were out there. Yeah. Every, I read everything. And then, you know, you're talking about stuff like The Bob and these, you know, the first fanzines I could get my hands on and independent, you know, like The Aquarian was a New Jersey weekly that would write about music. So, But the the thing, unlike now, it's a, it's a hard thing, for, I think, for some kids to realize. It's just like you would read about these things, but you you had to work to go hear it. You know, whether you go buy it or you're listening to the to the radio nonstop, hoping that you'll hear some of these things you're reading about. And that's what got me into college radio is because a lot of the stuff I'm reading about, like I wasn't going to hear on WNEW some of the bands that were being written about in a lot of these places. So you realize college radio has a lot of them. So that's how you hear um, Jesus and Mary Chain or, you know, yeah. The Cure even, or just stuff like that, you know, if because MTV would play some of it. But if if you really wanted to hear these things, like to hear the Velvet Underground, they didn't have videos and they weren't getting played on classic rock radio. So it's like you had to listen. College radio brought me to that world to hear yeah. to hear the Stooges and to hear the Velvet Underground and and all this stuff like Perubu and these things yeah. that you just I would read about and I couldn't wait to hear and I couldn't afford to buy everything. So yeah, and then. He, you know, being a big fan of talk radio through my whole life and you know, Howard Stern and like WABC. With Cousin Brucey and Harry cousin, Harrison. But, and that, but after, after it was a music station, it became a, a right-wing talk station. And I would listen to those guys, even though they, those were not my beliefs. Guys like Bob Grant were these broadcast. They were broadcasters. And I, I could disagree with everything he said, but he was a compelling broadcaster he knew how to to be dramatic and theatrical and that always appealed to me so i think all of those interests kind of made me at some point want to do a radio show and i did a fanzine which satisfied it to some point but i i did like the performance part of it like me being involved in it it was more active when you're on the radio than writing a fanzine and it takes months to put the thing out and it's already out of date by the time it got you know because so I was a huge fan of WFMU by way. Of, I, I think I started, I think Rutgers RSU was the first station I started to listen to. Yeah. And then, you know, Princeton had its station PRB, which I would listen to those. And then, but they led to WFMU, yeah. which was this station that even in the scheme of college radio was its own thing. It really was. Cause I mean, I was on RSU for years and then doing summers at PRB, mm -hmm. um, and FMU was definitely its own thing because it had all these different, really different characters and people that were doing it. It was cool. It was like there were a lot of different people, but they were very 
very serious about doing their shows. Sure, and, and it I, was it was. I think the thing that made it different was that it was not very student based. Right, like it was kind of like FUV or you know stations like mm-hmm. some of the NPR stations like the Current up uh, you know in Minneapolis. But you know where you know it's it's a, it's a different situation. It doesn't just have to be students. Yes, because that's then it's more transient in that. A- absolutely, it's not one of those stations where it's only staffed by students and it shuts off at uh, you know. Midnight, the the transmitter shuts off, or you can only hear it on campus. It's like WFMU was all through New Jersey, and it was older people exploring weird parts of music playing. You know, the, that's the first time I heard some of the things like William Shatner doing. You know, Rocket Man, and yeah, and I'm a Rocket Man. Yeah. Yes, like <laughs> these the best. Cr- like crazy <laughs> stuff like that. Hearing him do Mr. Tambourine Man, and and these oddball records too. That that kind of spoke to me as well because it's like oh wow this is the full spectrum of what's out there these strange little pockets of stuff and and i i think there's a, there was more of a historical presence to things there than just kind of being a college station that played alternative hits which look i love that more than anybody but wfmu was the next step on that and somehow i you know i kept listening and then i was able to put a tape together and I got an overnight show eventually there. So, yeah. And that was my uh, that was the first time I was on the radio. Hosting was on WFMU. And when did you start calling the show the best show? Well, for the first show I did was a music show, right there before and, the comedy and the stuff that you were yeah. doing and moving to the comedy side of things. But it's slowly I found as I got more comfortable on the radio, there got to be more comedy was on the there was more in the program, and then I I did it for a few years and it was. I was at a crossroads where I was like, I, I need to find a real job, and this does not feel like something that is going to get me there. So I, I, I quit the station while I focused on writing and trying to get a job in TV or wherever I was going to end up. And I focused on that, and I was kind of getting closer to where I wanted to end up. And then the Upright Citizens Brigade was such a big part of my life at that point. I would go watch those shows at their theater, and before I had quit the show, I did a a, a couple uh, calls with John Worcester, who uh, he called in as a guy who wrote a book called a Rock Rotten Rule, which was a fake book about rating bands, whether they rocked, whether they rot, or whether they rule. And it was kind of meant to <laughs> wind up yeah. the audience a little bit because he was giving answers that would be so frustrating to people listening, and he would deliberately get facts wrong. Like he said, just to get people confrontational yeah, and get them like active. Exactly, because <laughs> people are listening, and then he's saying that Madness invented ska, and then people are like, "Go, no, it's Prince Buster, and it's you know, you know." It's, you know. <laughs> but it's like serving it up. It was like a tee ball. It was on the stand, and just begging people to hit it. And that, so that was one of the. We did a couple of those as the last thing before I took a break from doing a show there, and then seeing. The UCB, seeing them do their thing, their Sunday night show, Ask Cats, and I was just like, they're doing the thing they want to do the way they want to do it. And I was like, you know, if I could ever do radio again, I would want it to be a comedy show, and I would want it to be the way I would want to do it, not a music show with comedy. It's like, if I ever go back, it would be doing what John and I did on that call every week. So, and then... I proposed that to the station and they they were into it so that's how the show started and it was 
kind of in the spirit of the call, which was a little baiting and, and provocative. It's like my wife came up with the idea of calling the show the best show on WFMU because it's, um, you know, it gets a rise out of people a little bit. And well, once again, it begs for attention because oh, yeah. it begs people to, for debate, right? No matter That's what. Look, and, and your wife's on the radio there too, right? Yes. Yeah, she does a show too. And she, uh, she had the idea because it starts this, you know, th- there is a thing to giving yourself something like that to start the discussion. If I don't say, if I say it's the best show on WFMU, there'll be some people who'll go, yeah, it is the best show on WFMU. Or there'll be people who go like, look, that's not the best show. On, but you don't start the discussion unless you make some insane claim sometimes. Yeah. So it's like, if I said it's an okay show on WFMU, I think everybody would go, eh, it's okay. Yeah, because sure, right. it, 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 it's not drawing any kind of line in the sand yes, there. So that's exactly. Great, you know? Well, that comes also out of The Clash, you know, the only yes. band that matters. And yeah. You, you say these things, and when The Clash said that, I, I'm. I, they knew they were not the only band that mattered, but it starts the yeah. discussion. Yeah. Is it, I wonder or, if their manager, Bernie Rhodes, came up with them or they did. I mean, sure, regardless. Somebody in that, but they definitely were into yeah. having that be the discussion. Yeah. The only, it's because. Again, confrontational because it makes people, you know, people have to yeah, respond to it. Absolutely. <laughs> a, were you a big fan of the Clash stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I liked it so much. I remember um, trading. A copy of uh, of L.A. Woman, uh, the LP for L.A. Woman for London Calling, and then just being like, "Yeah, I think I won this. Uh, I think I won this trade. This was I. I came out first of all. I came yeah. out with a double album. Yeah, for a single album, and it's also uh, you know London Calling. I'd rather listen to then and now more than L.A. Woman any it, day of the week. It's a great record, and you know you gotta love a band like The Clash, Tom, who were at the time, doing things to fool their record company and to help their fans. I mean, they lied and said that the second album was an EP so they could keep it as yeah. a bonus EP so they could keep it the price of a single album. Yeah. And then when they did the third, the next album, which was the fourth album, Sandinista, they said it was a double, but it was a triple. So they yeah. were kept trying to, they literally were seeing if the label was paying attention and Epic wasn't, or yeah. CBS in the UK. So they were giving their fans more for their money, which I think is cool. Oh, yeah. That, um... That, and that's part of what I responded to when you felt that you had your bands, you know, and they, you felt like they were kind of, you had a connection with people like that, like with artists to where it's like, no, this is, these are my guys and they're fighting against, you look, when, like, I love the Beatles more than almost any other band I've ever loved, but I understood the idea of the Clash kind of throwing the Beatles under the bus a little bit because it had to be done in a way. It's like you can't live in the, these things can't keep growing and growing, and then you're just small in the shadow of these giants. It's like at some point you got to tear them down. Yeah, to build, then, to let yourself grow. Yeah, and I think there also it was such a response to at the time you couldn't turn on a TV in 1979 and 80 without seeing the Beatle on Broadway ad. So that was there was about that about Beatlemania. Sure, people playing the Beatles on Broadway who weren't really the Beatles. So yes. I think that was one of the things that. Joe first saw that's he came back from that first trip here to America to record Give Him Enough Rope and saw that on the TV yeah. every day and went back and, and wrote the, that. You, you, know? Know, the, you know, the funny thing about the Beatles is they're so popular that you almost sometimes could forget that they're not from America. Yeah. In a way, even though yeah. you, you, you know when you listen to them, they're obviously English. Yeah. But there's something about them, like bands that got so big, it's like America has as much of a claim to them as, as, 
the UK in a way. You, you know what I mean? You ever feel that? Yeah, I do. Dylan actually said in 64, Dylan made a comment. Maybe it was 65, but he said they should raise statues of the Beatles here in America. They gave this country its pride back. Mm-hmm. And I think he was referring to the fact that the Kennedy assassination had made people so disillusioned and that, you know, that, you know, nobody knew what was going on, that within two months with the Beatles, well, three months with the Beatles coming here, yeah. all of a sudden people were excited about something again. Sure, you know? yeah. It, it, the it timing was... couldn't have been more perfect for them. No. And no. they made great records, too. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. But, it, it's, but I know what you mean. It's very easy to, to realize that they were, um, there's so many ways that they might not have had a chance to fulfill their vision the way they did have a chance to fulfill it, and it just what where would all of that? Who would have filled all of that room? Yeah, where, you know, because somebody it's like every there always needs to be the biggest band of of a time, and yeah. they they got to be that. But you, ha- it's kind of like the luck of the draw. Who gets the shot at being that too? Because there's so many people who are always so many talented people all the time, and they just don't get the window to get in there. So that the thing can explode. Yeah, absolutely. Now you said you upright citizen brigade. You love that. That was fun. Have you ever done the? Have you ever done the monologist thing? I did it one time a long time ago. Yeah, I did it like two years ago, and it was uh-huh. so much fun to get to do that, Tom. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it. Like at first, you know, they were talking about you know tell some stuff about your youth, and I talked about my aneurysm and some other stuff that I had when I was a teenager. But then realizing how great the skits were. I had to tell this story about how a friend of mine, you know, one of his favorite things to do when we were like, you know, 13 or 14 to, you know, to mischief in the neighborhood was to get up on the hood of people's cars and take a dump on their hood, <laughs> which was just so ridiculous and so out of control uh-huh. that just thinking about that, that gave Chris Gethard and Horatio Sands and those guys all some great oh, material. Yeah. That just said that. That was yeah. just, And how about the fact that this guy now owns fine dining establishments in San Juan? But I, you know, when I think about him being a restaurateur, I, all I can think about is him s- pulling his pants down and yeah. standing on the hood of a car and taking a dump. Yeah. It's just out well, of control. You can eat there. I'll, I'll pass. Yeah, I, think I agree. You're listening to The Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. So then tell me about moving into the writing for comedy, because I know that there are certain shows that you, I know Get a Life was a big influence on you. And so tell me about. How you finally started getting to write for shows and you know, being involved with Comedy Central and then even Monk. I want to hear yeah, about Yeah, yeah. It's, it's always been, my whole life I've always been, it's like comedy and, and music have been the two interests and neither of them ever waned, but I realized that I was not, I was not going to perform music. I was just going to be a fan of music, that I could create comedy and I should just kind of support music but they still they've always been just as as important to me through my whole life and it's also hard to get into comedy and then go do straight music stuff because you're the person who makes fun of stuff and then now you're supposed to do something heartfelt like that it feels like the die had been cast and I was the person who made fun of stuff and teased stuff so it's hard it would be impossible for me to go write some straight love song about something and then not, yeah. ha- you know, it's, I, I could not see, I, I figured out what side of the street I was living on. Yeah. So, um, the radio show was a great way to combine the two interests, but the, the writing trying to do something with comedy always felt like where I would want to be, you know, career wise. So I, I wrote stuff. I wrote movies and things that never got made and, um, just worked on getting a job in 
doing something, and I worked as an assistant to uh, Andy. His name's Andy Breckman. He's the guy who he wrote wrote features, and he had said, you know, he I was working as his assistant when he would write a feature. He would need somebody to be like a sounding board. Like we'd sit around while he'd write, and what do you think of this? What do you think of that? That's funny. Like just so he could bounce ideas off of, and it turned out to be kind of an audition for the show that he had created that became Monk that he said, you know, I'll, I'll hire you if this thing goes to series. And it always seemed like, okay, well, that's a nice gesture, but 99 out of 100 of these things don't go forward. But then that one did. So I got, I finally got my foot in the door writing for that show and stayed there for the entirety of its uh, eight-year run. It's amazing it was eight years. Oh. Yeah, we did 125 episodes. And Tony, he was he was great. You know, he's oh. just uh, phenomenal on this show. He's, <laughs> he's the best. He's just like that guy. He's like the gold standard of how you should operate in show business to where, I mean, he was in every scene of the series, so it means he's up at 6 in the morning every day, and, you know, he's the first one there and the last one to leave every day. But he always, he didn't complain, and he was just such a uh, just a champ with everything that nobody else could complain if he's, you know, and yeah. we're doing He set stuff. the standard, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And he, just on a personal level, it's like I had a, uh, there was like a contract uh, negotiation thing one year, and it was kind of, they were at odds. The, you know, the network didn't want to pay me what my agent thought I was worth. So then... um there was like a standoff, and then, then Tony found out about it, and then he called the head of the network, and it was just saying, like, I can't do the show without this guy. And then that cleared everything up, and it's like, look, he could have done the show without me. And then the next time I ran into the head of the network, he was just like, I don't know what you did, but you uh, you won that one. It's like you have the right guy on your side. So, That's great. Yeah, he's he's such a good guy. I mean, um, is Andy have a show too at FMU? Does he? Yes, he does. And, and he? he does a does a, a show on uh, Wednesdays called Seven Second Delay, and that's how I got to know Andy was through the station. So the station helped make a lot of a lot of connections. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, it's yeah. really cool. And what a great show! What a great idea mm-hmm. to have a guy with obsessive compulsive disorder and yeah. germophobic and all things. I mean, to make a show out of a kind of detective, uh-huh. it was it was it was a great idea. Oh yeah, I mean that was Andy's. It was I guess it was um, it was a way to update a show like Columbo and stuff like. Yeah, that. it was, was like the Columbo, but like you know the Columbo with serious disorders. Yeah, yeah, which is what was exactly. Cool, you yeah. know? And it was kind of the only one of those shows that at that time on TV, it's like all the shows were you know, like CSI, where it's a, like a team of people trying to solve mysteries, and, you know, like trying to do cases and everything's high tech and all this stuff. And then we were writing the show that was about a character, like a, a weirdo who was funny. And it was just, it was a totally, it was a very old fashioned approach to stuff. So that was kind of fun to write something that wasn't trying to be state-of-the-art with, you know, gadgets, scanning, crime scenes, and all this stuff. We tried to make it very organic and, and kind of low-tech. And there was some tongue-in-cheek stuff in there, too, that was great, too. Just some of the characters. Yeah, it was it was fun. It was such a fun time. They changed his sidekick after a few years, right? There was this woman, Ben yeah. Shram, and then they got the second one. Was that, was that something they just decided? Did she leave, or was it a network yeah, there, thing? there was a little bit of a, a sticky situation that it's... 
you know, it's one of the, I guess the unfortunate parts of stuff is that, you know, sometimes the people can't come to whatever terms they have to come to. And then, you know, somebody's yeah. got to make a change because the the, tr- the train is going to keep going. Yeah. Whether you're on it or not. Yeah. We so. see that a lot. You keep hearing about that. It gets reported on all these entertainment shows about people that are, you, want, you know, yeah. I'm not saying that's, a, I don't know what the facts are. And I, but I mean, you know, we're, where people are are demanding a certain amount, and then yeah, you know, it people is. go, "Hey, guess what? We can do it without you." <laughs> you There's know? that point. You start yeah. you you start to learn where it's just like, you know, at some point, I got to figure out how far I'm going to push this thing. Yeah, because at some point they're going to push back. Yeah, and when they push back, I'm not working anymore. Yeah, yeah. Somebody said it right. It's better to have seventy uh, percent of something than <laughs> than zero percent. Yeah, hundred percent of nothing. Yeah, that no, was what, you know. That, that yes, absolutely. So, um, people, I mean, have been big fans of the stuff that you and John do, and the phone ins that go on the show, and you guys have you only have once performed live, right? Didn't you host it? Uh, the Matador Records uh, out in Vegas, their anniversary wasn't it like their twenty first year? Yeah, or something? the Matador they were old had, enough to drink, right? Was it twenty first year? Finally, was old enough to drink. Yes, <laughs> yeah, so. there was definitely a lot of. They were definitely taking advantage of that. <laughs> of that Vegas. anniversary. Yes. They were living it to the fullest. Yeah, it was it was fun because it was um we were like a a, a late addition to the the show was sold out already without like nobody bought a ticket to go see us do the do the thing because it they put it on sale before we were on the bill and it sold out right away and John and I um got asked to MC one of the the three nights and it was uh like guided by voices and and Yola Tango and Ted Leo and the pharmacists and new pornographers played that night. It was just such a crazy yeah. That was like it's like an all star lineup. And then um, so John and I wrote all this uh, stuff that we could do for it, but we were just like, man, we better not outstay our welcome up there. Somebody's gonna throw a bottle at us. So we tried to make it short and sweet and went up and because people are there to see bands, not to see us. So that was yeah. kind of a I think we did it the right way, and it was fun. And I, we're definitely going to do uh, more more live stuff together. Yeah, we'd love to see that. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it would be uh, fun. We, we've we've talked about how we're going to do it, but we'll we'll figure it out. Now, tell me about uh, your video directing uh, career. It's just been really growing as well. Done some great videos, some really funny stuff. Whether it's real estate, fans like real estate, or let's talk about those Amy Mann videos that were great. Her and I were actually talking about them on this podcast, uh-huh. and um, you know. To redo voices, carry and bring in. You guys got guests like John Hamm on there from Mad Men, and yeah, you know, it was just really cool. It was fun. Tell me about when you go to artists with some of the ideas. Did anybody ever look at you and go, "That's out of control"? Or are well, people really open minded generally? I was with the Amy man because I'm friends. I've been friends with Amy for a while, and she she's uh, like a very good friend and a, and a very important person in my life. So I was I had the idea. Because, you know, growing up, you know, Voices Carry when in 85, when that was on MTV, I mean, it was on a constant, you couldn't watch an hour of MTV without seeing that video. Yeah. And for, for people of a certain generation, that video's like tattooed on your memory. Yeah, it's a bl- the blueprint, it's in there, it's burned yeah. in, right? You might not, <laughs> it might not be in the forefront, but you watched it so many times that you knew that by heart as soon as you saw it you'd be like oh i remember that i remember that i remember that so 
when Amy asked me to do, uh, she was like, maybe we could do two videos back to back for the album. And I mean, it made sense. We'd figure out three shooting days to do two videos. And, um, you know, when I try to do these things, I, I try I try to figure something out where it's like, I would never want to do a video where it kind of ruined the song or it kind of made the artist look stupid or stuff. Cause it's like, we're, I'm, we're doing these things to help promote the song and to, to serve the artist. So I, I was kind of like thinking that one through and it's just like, she's got a good sense of humor. I just hope um, that she gets where I'm coming from on this, this idea of, of her playing that part again. And um, it was just like trying to figure out the way. So the way that it made sense was to have her, that we shot a thing up front where she was doing it against her will. She was doing it contractually. She had to do this video. Of and, front, yeah. 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 So we got John Hamm to play me, which is always the funniest thing to me ever. That it just like, yeah, let's go get the most handsome guy on earth to play me. And so, um, that was great. Yeah. It was, it was, it was but yeah. Amy went along with it. And the, my two, the two producers who I do all the videos with, uh, Rob Hatch Miller and Paloma Basu, they went to work. And they scouted out New York City and found like every kind of place because the original video was shot in Boston. Where the she was from. Yeah, where Till Tuesday were from there. So they managed to find all of these locations that looked just like the original video in New York. And then we just shot this thing like we shot that video and we did one that had uh, Laura Linney in it for another song on Amy's album, Charmer. We shot those two videos in three days, and it was it was in June of 2012, and there was this incredible heat wave rolled in to where it was like 100 degrees at like, you know, 8 in the morning. Everybody's covered in sweat. And then naturally that's when we're trying to shoot these things. And I remember the video with Laura Linney. She's playing a, a, a robot double for Amy, and um, we're shoving her in a cardboard box putting a plastic wrap over her and it's like a hundred degrees out and everybody's sweating. And it just looks like, like she's been, she's an Oscar nominated actress and now she's doing this thing for free and I'm shoving her in a cardboard box. It's just like, she's going to walk out at some point. She was but, a real sport. Though, oh, wasn't she, she was so great. She's so amazing. And you start to realize when people are that, there's a reason why they work on a high level it's just like they know how to do things and they do them so well and they do them so well immediately that they just there's just an intelligence that informs everything they do and yeah. she laura linney was just like that and john ham is like that where they're just they're talented but there's an intelligence to their talent too. yes so it was and i just knew with the till tuesday one it's like if this comes out the way it seems like it's going to come out, and I had to sit down and watch the original video. I must have watched for like 12 hours just with a pad breaking down this shot is two seconds long and this shot is four seconds long because the two songs don't line up time-wise either. The one is the one on Amy Amy's new song, Labrador, is shorter than the Till Tuesday video was, so we had to like do a math problem and just shave seconds to make it so every shot lines up and all the stuff. It was crazy. So you cheated a little bit and cut a, cut a couple seconds here and there. And we had seen. to just yeah. shave here and there, and just like to get it to time out perfectly. And then it came in. It's like 
if this adds up, it's going to be great. But if it doesn't add up, then we're doomed. But yeah. it added up, so I was very relieved. They both turned out great. I want to recommend any, oh. anyone listening right now to go out and go on, check those both out oh. online, Labrador and Charmer from Amy Mann. Thank you. Tell them uh, what things are coming up, too, because I heard you had a couple shows in development. Have you been working on writing some shows? I was doing so a couple I'm... things. I had a couple things at Comedy Central that didn't go the distance. I was doing one show with the uh, the Gregory Brothers, who they're the – they do like the auto tune the news videos and yeah and all those and they're just so super talented and we were developing a show together and we shot a pilot and um it did not go to series which was uh you know a real bummer because i was so happy with the pilot and i had such a great time working with those guys kind of turn what they do yeah. into a tv show and but it, you know that's that's how this stuff goes. But now yeah. I'm working on something that I, uh, it's kind of a secret. I wish yeah. I could tell you. Well, keep it you keep it to yourself, and we'll, I look yeah. forward to checking it out. That other idea sounded good, too. You just never know what people are going to do. But you just, yeah. It's, I, such, it's such a crap. Everything's such a crap, a crap shoot. shoot. You <laughs> yeah, just have to true. do stuff. So you just have to keep doing stuff and hope stuff sticks. It's like throwing yeah. stuff against the wall and see what sticks. Yes. But you can't. It's always felt like if I stopped doing stuff, it would take people like a month People would be like, please, no, keep going. But then after a month, people were like, man, okay, well, we'll find something else to watch or listen to. It's like, so you got to do it for yourself. Yeah. Because if you do it for other people, you know, I don't know. Yeah. People, hey, at the end of the day, you do have to do it for yourself. You yeah. Happy to come yeah. from within you, you know. But I think that's great. I, I mean, I, I look forward to that, Tom. Oh. And any other videos that we'll, we'll be able to check out soon that you're working on? At the um. You know, I did. I in December I shot a couple things for uh, the Postal Service, the band. It's uh, Kurt Ben Gibbard's thing. Yeah, it's Ben Gibbard's band, and they're con- they're doing a tour. Uh, they announced that they're playing Coachella, and they're gonna. Did you do them for old songs from the album since they're re-releasing it? No, or- what we did is we well they, we did it because they're they're doing a tenth anniversary reissue of their one album. Yeah, but we did one. I shot two things with them. One is kind of like a mini documentary, kind of getting. Ben Gibbard and Jimmy Tamborello to kind of tell the story of how this weird band came together that where they were mailing each other CDRs back and forth. You know, they recorded it in Seattle and, and Los Angeles. And then somehow this band that was never supposed to exist became like the second biggest selling band in sub pop history. You know, their album went platinum last year. So it's kind of getting them to do that. It's kind of a straight mini doc thing that should be out pretty shortly. And then another one we did, which was a funny um, video showing, um, takes place in 2002, and it's Jimmy Tamborello auditioning potential lead singers for uh, the Postal Service. And we got a whole, <laughs> we got such an amazing group of people to come in and. Can you make, tell us like, who are you? Or oh, we... It's got to be a surprise. Okay, it's yeah. Pretty, some pretty crazy people and um we're editing that one now and it should be it's going to be really funny great well i look forward to that i can't oh, wait to see it. Yeah, it i think you'll like it i remember you know record shopping with ben we had met on a plane coming from seattle and uh you know and he introduced himself all the guys who were there uh, from from uh, death cab at the time and we ended up kind of djing for each other you know okay cd players and ipods kind of mm-hmm. going back and forth and he said well you know i'm going to be in town um, in about a week or two, you want to go record shopping. So we went record and video shopping downtown, like Kim's, sure. Rocket Scientists, all these places. Yeah, yeah. And that's where he said, he goes, oh, well, this is the guy 
the, the postal service would mean give me that dental record oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. jimmy got, uh jimmy's record you know so yeah i i had not had it mm-hmm. so it was very cool he turned me on to that among other things that's awesome but, yeah ben ben has uh such a great and this was back then you know it was back around yeah, the yeah. time yeah oh, yeah he's that's a he's, couple that's about 10 years ago now yeah, right no i mean that's yeah. uh yeah he's definitely uh kind of established himself as as a real force in yeah. stuff you know and it, it's exciting to see it's exciting to see somebody who's so good at stuff and that's also one of the nice things of just about doing the radio show and having getting to meet people it's like you actually get to be friends with people whose work you admire yeah and you see and you get to watch them try stuff and get good at stuff and then put albums out and you know yeah. sometimes you know that's play. one of the most exciting things about what we do right? oh yeah, yeah so you get I to be a, you get to see the creative process in all these different uh stages yeah it's amazing and then make make friends with these folks and mm-hmm. bounce ideas off you sometimes oh yeah it's, and, it's, it's the best but just be and being a fly on a wall for a lot of those great things the creative like you said the creative process yeah i love it i want to tell uh, tom i want to really thank you for coming by and i want uh, you know our listeners to check out both your podcast, Low Times, tell people how they can find it. Um, well, Low Times is, is a podcast. It's kind of a long-form music interview podcast that we right. do because it's, you know, as, as, as you know, it's just like you, you get to meet these people as we were just talking about. And it's like so, so many people have so many awesome stories. And when you only talk to people in sound bites and, and short things, you don't get to know the people and there's so many podcasts with comedians talking about comedy and doing long form stuff and i was i did a fanzine a long time ago that it kind of made sense to do a podcast that would be like a music version of a lot of the comedy podcasts so that's what low times is and you can that's on itunes low times podcast and uh we do them every other week and it's me and uh daniel ralston and maggie sirota we all interview different people and we've had a pretty wide uh, array of people you were one of them yeah it was it was great it was really i really enjoyed the experience of doing it with you tom oh and also the best show on fmu tell everybody mm-hmm. how they can check out the best show on you FMU. can you can the show's live on tuesday nights uh, from 9 p.m to midnight you can listen over the radio at uh, 91.1 if you're in the tri-state area or you can listen anywhere on the planet i guess uh, at the website wfmu.org we do the show on Tuesdays, Thursday. It goes up as a podcast. You can get over at iTunes. Right. Uh, it's cool. So people can really, it's a one-stop shopping if they want to. Yes. If people one, listen to this all over. <laughs> Although nobody's actually shopping. All yeah, because it's free. Everything's free. <laughs> Absolutely. When am I going like, to get paid for free. stuff, Matt? No, exactly. <laughs> Tom, it was great to see you, and thanks so much for coming down. Oh, no, this is Hivecast. my pleasure. Thank you. I really appreciate it. No, it was, it's great to see you. Tom Sharpling, everyone, on the Hivecast. <laughs> This has been the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. For all things music, news, interviews, live events, and more, go to mtvhive.com.